Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. A former CIA chief looks to history to spy an oil-free future. What people ought to look back to, instead of John Kennedy's moonshot, they ought to look back to Teddy Roosevelt and how he went after the trusts. We ought to use the government to break monopolies. And the monopoly that matters is OPEC and oil's monopoly over transportation. Also, the frozen north is defrosting fast, threatening to release 100 billion tons of greenhouse gases. That's roughly equivalent to half of the total fossil fuel emissions since the dawn of the Industrial Age. And a polar opposite story, worms in Antarctica. The uh, dominant predator here in the Dry Valleys is the fearsome nematode. It's a microscopic worm that eats uh, both algae and also other microbes. Those stories and more just ahead on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. National security and energy security. A conversation with former CIA chief James Woolsey about the threat posed by our dependence on foreign oil. But first, the scales are tipping. Global warming is converting vast carbon sinks into huge carbon emitters. Two regions that store enormous amounts of climate-changing gases are undergoing dramatic changes themselves. In recent years, devastating droughts in the Amazon have killed tens of millions of trees in the world's largest rainforest. As they rot, the dead trees will release 13 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. That's as much as China and the United States emit in a year. Now researchers warn even more CO2 could be released in the coming decades as global warming heats up the ground in the frozen Arctic. Kevin Schaefer is a climate scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado. Dr. Schaefer, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you very much. So let's talk permafrost. What is it and why should I care about what happens to it? Permafrost is permanently frozen ground in high latitude tundra regions. You imagine on the surface of the ground, you got your vegetation, grasses and mosses. Underneath that, you got a layer of soil that thaws in the summer and freezes again in the winter. And underneath that is the permafrost, permanently frozen ground. The permafrost starts only about a a meter or so from the surface, but it can extend down thousands of feet. And we should be concerned about this because the permafrost contains a large amount of frozen organic matter. Organic matter that's been frozen since the last ice age, 30 to 10,000 years ago. So if I understand your research, what you're saying is that the permafrost is melting, essentially. It's thawing out. And that it's turning from a a sink into a source. That is, it stored carbon dioxide, and now it's going to be releasing it back into the atmosphere, these greenhouse gases. The best analogy we like to use is that you have broccoli in your freezer. As long as it stays in the freezer, it'll stay stable for a very long time. But if you take it out of the freezer, it'll eventually thaw out and decay. And that's what we're talking about with the carbon, the organic matter that's currently frozen in the permafrost. This carbon has remained frozen for tens of thousands of years. And as temperatures rise, as we put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, it starts to thaw out. Eventually, the thaw layer will reach the frozen carbon. Once it thaws out, it'll decay, and the carbon will end up back into the atmosphere. 
So the Earth is getting warmer because of greenhouse gases. This causes the permafrost to thaw, which releases more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, and that causes more warming, and on and on and again. Exactly. This is called the permafrost carbon feedback. And once the carbon is put back into the atmosphere, it will accelerate the warming due to the release of fossil fuel emissions. So are we talking about a runaway climate change here? No, we're not. We're not talking Venus. But we are talking a significant amplification. Now, I can't tell you at this time exactly how many degrees additional warming we would see due to this. That's the next phase of our research. But I can tell you that it's a huge amount of carbon. And we estimate that the Arctic will change from a sink of carbon relative to the atmosphere to a source in about 20 years. Well, you don't quantify how much carbon dioxide could be emitted? Oh, we do. We estimate by 2200, 190 gigatons, plus or minus 64 gigatons of carbon put into the atmosphere. Now, that's a lot of carbon. And to give a perspective, that's roughly equivalent to half of the total fossil fuel emissions since the dawn of the industrial age. Or to put it another way, it's equivalent to the emissions from all power plants in the United States for 80 years. So right now we're at, what, 390 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And and scientists say that's above the safety level. They'd like to see it at 350. So where would this put us in 90 years? We estimate maximum possible about 80 ppm, roughly an additional 20%. Instead of 390, we'd be up to 470? Yes. So what happens to your numbers now? Well, the next phase of the research is to do many more simulations to try to get a better handle on the uncertainty in our estimates and also to work with other modeling teams to put this into a fully dynamic climate model so that we could actually quantify how much additional warming or amplification we would see due to the release of CO2 from permafrost. Your figures have not been used in climate models before? No. Ours is the first study to estimate how much and when carbon would be released from the permafrost. None of the other models in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change include the permafrost carbon feedback. I do know that many of the modeling teams are working right now to put permafrost carbon into their models. So what has to be done is we've got to make even greater cuts than are now being voluntarily agreed upon. The release of carbon from permafrost is irreversible, just like fossil fuels. You know, fossil fuels, once you drill the carbon, drill the oil, and burn it, there's no way to put that oil back into the ground. In permafrost, once you thaw out the organic matter and it decays, there's no way to put that organic matter back into the permafrost. So what it means is that we have to reduce our emissions even more in order to hit a target atmosphere CO2 concentration. The primary results of our paper is that permafrost can release a huge amount of carbon and that we really have to account for that carbon when developing our global strategies to reduce fossil fuel emissions. Well, Kevin Schaefer, thank you so very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Kevin Schaefer is a climate scientist at the National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado. His study appears in the latest online edition of the journal TELUS. Well, our reliance on fossil fuels not only has consequences for climate change, but national security as well. Recent pro-democracy demonstrations have destabilized, even overthrown autocratic governments in North Africa and the Middle East. 
The uncertainty and the sometimes brutal suppression of protesters in these troubled, oil-rich regions have sent the price of petroleum soaring. Since the wave of uprisings, oil has topped $100 a barrel, and prices at the pump have drivers and the economy hitting the brakes. Jim Woolsey says for the U.S., the bad economic news could be just beginning. Woolsey directed the Central Intelligence Agency during the Clinton administration. He recently spoke with Living on Earth's Steve Kerwood. So you have been a long-term advocate for dealing with the question of imported oil for A, national security, and B, taking care of the environment. So this this has to be a moment that you have, have long anticipated. Well, I think it's going to happen again and again and again, perhaps not with uh, revolutions uh, throughout the Middle East, uh, but uh, for one reason or another, we will be in a situation which we are paying huge amounts of money to other countries, uh, many of which, as several presidents have said, don't like us very much for uh, our ability to transport anything, because transportation is dominated by petroleum products, about 95%. And OPEC controls close to 80% of the world's uh, uh, proven reserves of uh, conventional petroleum. Right now, they're keeping the price high, even before this last round of revolutions, by uh, pumping only about 40% of the world's oil, but holding on to close to 80% uh, of its reserves. How large is the risk to our economy if there's an oil price shock out of the events now in the Middle East? It's gigantic. At uh, $100 a barrel oil, we are borrowing uh, well over a billion dollars a day to import oil, approaching $2 billion. And uh, suppose we get a 30 40% increase to where it was uh, two years ago, 147 or so, say 150 uh, then we'll be borrowing close to $3 billion a, a day to uh, import uh, oil. Wait a second. Your math is... If there's an oil price shock back to the peak level we saw last time, the U.S. is going to be borrowing $3 billion bucks a day from the world, or, or, or like that's a trillion dollars over the course of a year. At $100 a barrel, we're borrowing close to a billion and a half. Uh, if you take it up to 150 uh, say it's uh, $2.5 billion a day. And uh, uh, it's one major reason why our debt uh, is so high and why our, uh, the dollar is starting to be looked at askance uh, as a reserve currency by some countries. It's stunning. How, I mean, our oil debt is much bigger than our trade deficit with China. Everybody is worried about the trade deficit with China. Well, that's an important thing to worry about. We need to work on that. But the oil, uh, the amount we borrow to import oil is much bigger. So what you're saying is is that our balance of trade deficit, America's debt to the wider world, is going up for oil. At the same time, we're looking at cutting the federal deficit. There are moves there that would reduce federal spending on energy redevelopment, renewables, uh, so on and so forth. In the present circumstances, how wise do you think that is? Well, some of the things that we have done are really focused at electricity, not oil, although people like to make speeches saying foreign oil's a problem, oil's a problem, therefore, let's have nuclear power plants. Well, since only 1% to 2% of our electricity comes from burning oil these days, uh, you can build all the nuclear power plants you want, but it has virtually nothing to do with getting off uh, petroleum. The same thing is true of, of wind farms. Those may be two perfectly fine ways to produce electricity cleanly, uh, but they don't really have anything to do with oil, and neither did uh, cap and trade. Drill baby drill also is uh, is not the solution. Uh, that helps the balance of payments a bit, but with 
3% of the world's oil reserves and 25% of the world's oil consumption, we are not going to be able to drill ourselves uh, out of uh, OPEC uh, having effective uh, control of the market. So what's the solution? What we have to do is break that monopoly oil has. And anything we can do to not only use less of oil, that's not all that useful because the Saudis and others will just cut back production more in order to keep uh, prices high. We've got to get off onto other fuels. And it's not that we're addicted to oil, as it's been said. It's that our cars are. One thing is uh, look to Brazil and require that all of our new vehicles uh, be flexible fuel open standard is the phrase. And what that means is that they can use any mixture of gasoline or alcohols and not just ethanol, but methanol, so-called wood alcohol, which can be made rather inexpensively these days out of natural gas. You can still produce it for uh, $2 and something uh, a gallon with today's technology. What you can't do is use it in an ordinary car because the fuel line is the wrong kind of plastic. And it is a very small change, $100 or so in the manufacturing process. And what that would do is open up petroleum products like gasoline to competition. Now, you've been making the national security pitch about getting off of oil for a long time. What kind of cultural resistance have you run into? Normally, what happens is that people say, oh, yeah, I know it's a problem, but uh, we can't really spend the money to do it just yet. It's always not refutation, but delay. It's one reason I've uh, gotten particularly interested in uh, Boyd and Gray's uh, point. I published in a very detailed article a couple of years ago that what the oil companies use to enhance octane, once we got the lead out back in the 70s, is so-called aromatics, benzene, toluene, xylene. It's that sweet smell that you smell when you're pumping uh, gasoline. Those are highly carcinogenic. And uh, Boyden's calculations uh, indicate that well over $100 billion a year in added health care costs and shortened lives come from uh, us using that to enhance octane. Well, you could use alcohols instead. You could use methanol made from natural gas, and it's not carcinogenic. So um, I keep trying with the national security issues and climate change issues and uh, pollution issues and now health care uh, issues, whatever will, uh, will work. I, I look on oil sort of uh, as I guess maybe the G-men back in the 20s and 30s looked at uh, Al Capone. He's done a lot of things wrong, and if you can't get him uh, uh, for murder, uh, get him for tax evasion, uh, well, whatever works. James Woolsey is the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency and now a senior fellow at the Jackson Institute at Yale University. Thank you so much, sir. Good to be with you. There's more of Steve's interview with Jim Woolsey and more about the melting Arctic at our website, LOE.org. Just ahead, smart meters are coming, and you may find them too smart by half. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The Environmental Protection Agency recently turned 40. And like a lot of 40-year-olds, the agency is taking a midlife look in the mirror, metaphorically speaking anyway, and planning some big changes. The EPA is undertaking what some call a seismic shift in the way it works, making sustainability its central goal. To do that, the agency is counting on Paul Anastas. The EPA's top scientist has a long track record of putting sustainability to work. Living on Earth's Jeff Young has this profile. 
The Environmental Protection Agency started in 1970, a time when smokestacks belched pollution and rivers occasionally caught fire. The problems were big and plain to see. EPA Assistant Administrator Paul Anastas says today's problems are big, but a bit murkier. When we start looking at um, complex problems like climate change, subtle problems such as endocrine-disrupting chemicals, they're more complex, they're more subtle, and they're going to need a new approach, a new thinking. There's a great quote from Albert Einstein. He said, problems can't be solved at the same level of awareness that created them. And so when we look at our current state of the environment, one of the things that we're trying to do is say, what's our new level of awareness? That's what we're trying to do at the EPA today. Anastas leads EPA's Office of Research and Development. He's also the agency's science advisor, in effect its top scientist. EPA science has long rested on narrowly focused specialists deciding how much harm people and nature can tolerate. Anastas wants his scientists to think more broadly about systems and sustainability. So systems thinking means that we're going to be asking questions about how not only can we make things less bad, how do we make things better, more sustainable, more healthful? Sustainability is our true north. So how might this approach that you're talking about make you better able to, to address a challenge like climate change? Well, climate change is a, is a key issue. Climate is inextricably linked to energy, energy inextricably linked to water, water to agriculture, agriculture to health, and we could go on and on. If we start saying that the entirety of our approach to sustainability is simply to reduce our carbon footprint or to look at any one aspect, then we will not be getting the, the power and the potential of the synergies of looking from a systems approach. Now, forgive me if, if this is an unfair stereotype, but it's my impression that the agency generally goes about its business by, well, you have an expert who, who does water and you have experts who do air. How do you get those different experts to all think horizontally as well as up and down? Well, you ask precisely the, the right question. It's not just bringing together a couple scientists. It's bringing together physical scientists, life scientists, economists, communication specialists, social and behavioral uh, scientists, the broadest spectrum of perspectives. So we need to understand the underlying nature of our materials and our energy. Are they depleting? Are they degrading of our natural ecosystems? Are they benign to humans in the environment, or are they inherently hazardous? Are they resilient, or are they vulnerable? These kinds of questions are not easy questions. They just happen to be the questions that we must ask and answer if we're going to uh, address these, uh, these challenges systemically. Anastas says the EPA is beginning to work this way in its assessment of toxic chemicals. That's the area where Anastas is best known. Terry Collins directs the Institute for Green Science in the Department of Chemistry at Carnegie Mellon University. He first met Anastas in the early 90s during his first stint at EPA. He was a young uh, chief of toxics at uh, EPA in his late 20s, I think. And he'd been looking at the way the EPA functioned, which is really saying, no, you can't do that, or trying to say, no, you can't do that and felt that the organization would be so much better off if it was instead encouraging industry uh, to develop products and processes that weren't toxic in the, in the first place. And he coined the name Green Chemistry, and I really regard him as the father of green chemistry. 
Anastas wrote many of green chemistry's most influential books and won the prestigious Heinz Award for his vision of chemistry that eliminates toxic risks. He was director of Yale's Center for Green Chemistry and Green Engineering when President Obama tapped him for a return to service at EPA. A talk with Anastas makes clear that the sustainability effort at EPA owes a great deal to green chemistry. Green chemistry is uh, the molecular basis of sustainability, recognizing that all we have in this world is energy and matter, energy and material. And how you redesign the material basis of our society and our economy so that they are sustainable and benign. This does not sound like a tinkering around the edges kind of kind of change. You're, you're talking about r- real kind of fundamental change about the way you guys go about business here. Yeah, this is a seismic shift. Well, I know that the public often doesn't think about the words EPA and innovation in the same sentence. This is not your grandfather's EPA. Anastas knows the change he's after won't come quickly or easily. EPA has asked the National Academy of Sciences for help. Nearly 30 years ago, the Academy helped shape EPA science with a publication called The Red Book. It was a how-to guide on putting the principles of risk management to work at EPA. Now the Academy is considering a similar guide on how to incorporate the principles of sustainability. The Academy's report, expected this summer, is already being called The Green Book. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young. Nearly 9% of the electric meters in the United States are smart, and more are on the way. These high IQ devices are designed to improve energy efficiency, cut greenhouse gases, and save you money. All good things, but smart meters may be a lot smarter than you think, and know a lot more about you than you might want. Kevin Duran monitors smart meters. He's a research professor at the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute at the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. So what makes a smart meter so smart? The idea behind a smart meter is that it communicates information to the utility. And in theory, the utility can also use that pathway, if you will, to send information back to the consumer in terms of price signals or in terms of switching off appliances when they're on but not being used and and could be saving electricity. So you think of it like this. You've got your traditional electricity system, transmission, distribution. We're all familiar with that. The smartness comes into play when you add information on top of that. Well, what can a utility know about me from a smart meter that they couldn't tell from a dumb meter? Well, think of a dumb meter. It just says to the utility, this is how much power you're using. Now think about a smart meter that's hooked up to all of the appliances in your homes. Uh, When you're in a certain part of your house and you're turning on lights, the smart meter is knowing that. So all of these things that were kind of hidden to the utility or to other interested parties become capable of being discerned because of the information that's being sent through that meter. So it can tell whether I'm toasting a bagel or getting a back massage? Well, no, but certain appliances definitely have certain energy signatures. So it could tell if you're using a microwave, which has a certain kind of signature. It could tell if you're using an oven, which has another kind of signature. So how is this data from a smart grid any different than, you know, smartphones or the data that comes from my using an easy pass on the road or Facebook? 
you know, it's, it's becoming an increasingly transparent society that we live in. One of the concerns, especially with smart grid, is that so much of this is happening inside the home. And we've traditionally viewed the four walls of the home as a sacrosanct place of privacy. What smart grid does is it takes those four walls and it makes them essentially transparent. And all of the intimate personal details that we assumed are our own, because they happen within those four walls, are now being communicated to utilities. And They're using this information to manage their load better, to make sure that customers are not using power at, let's say, peak power times, but using it at different times in the day so that they can use their system more efficiently. That very beneficial use aside, though, there are all sorts of other kinds of information that come through the smart signal that could be capable of being used nefariously. But it gets a lot more specific. You write that it uh, you can tell how often do you arrive home around bar time? Are you a restless sleeper? Do you get up frequently throughout the night? They can tell all this from the smart meters information? Yes and no. The information is just the information about the power usage that's happening into your house and then potentially about the kinds of appliances and when they turn on and when they turn off. That said, there's a whole lot of extrapolation that can be done on that data to figure this kinds of information out. So to give you the example of, do you come home from, you know, around the time when the bars close? So you pull into your house and you start turning on all your lights. And then it becomes clear that somebody is now home. And let's say that it's around 2 a.m., which is when the bars are closing. An insurance company looking at this information could see a pattern that shows that this person is routinely coming home at this period of time and then make a correlation or an assumption that says, ah, perhaps they're out there drinking and we should have have higher premiums for them. So it isn't just the data. The data is one thing, but it's also the kind of sophisticated correlations and comparisons and data parsing that can be done on that data to figure out all sorts of things about a person's life. Data mining. Data mining, essentially, yes. And it becomes even more concerning, I think, from a privacy perspective, when you realize it's not just about the smart grid data anymore. You know, our lives are increasingly digitized and placed online for other people to look at. So it's about the movie preferences that you make at Netflix or the blogs that you're participating in. And the reason I bring this up is because all of these data sets are floating out there. Now, if somebody for nefarious purposes wanted to take your smart grid data and start hooking it up with other kinds of data about you online, financial data, for instance, you can fairly quickly see how easy it would be for a sophisticated user to reconstruct virtually everything about you. Your digital doppelganger would become clear. So the real question is, who has access to the smart meter information? Yeah, that is that is a, a critical question, and this is up for grabs. This is a battleground between utility companies, third-party service providers that would like to be able to use this data to help customers manage their information, and people like marketers and advertisers who would like access to that information, and then consumer privacy advocates and, and consumers themselves. And as policymakers figure out how to approach this entire new terrain, they need to be cognizant of the fact that there are serious privacy concerns out there, and much of the legislation and statutes that deal with privacy have no idea what to do when it comes to the smart grid because this is so new. Professor, do you have a smart meter at home? Uh, I do not. I live in a town outside of Boulder, which is the subject of an experiment by the local utility here. It's called the Smart Grid Boulder City Experiment. So many of the people in Boulder do have smart meters on their homes. And when a smart meter comes knocking on your door, what are you going to do? I'm going to say yes, because I think that we can do this. I think that we can do it in a way that makes sense for environmental 
energy efficiency purposes, and that we can also figure out a way to make sure that this data is used appropriately. The critical questions up front are going to be who owns the data and what kind of protections are placed on that data. And although I'm sure it will not be a pain-free experience as we figure these answers out, uh, I think at the end of the day, we'll be happy. Well, Professor Duran, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Learned a lot. My pleasure. Kevin Doran is Assistant Research Professor at the Renewable and Sustainable Energy Institute at the University of Colorado, Boulder. The ebook is writing a new chapter in the way we read. Last year, Amazon, the online retailer, sold three times more electronic books than hardbacks, and for the first time, more e-books than paperbacks. You might think the revolution in reading, replacing paper with electronic digits, saves on greenhouse gases. But Raz Gudelnik has measured the carbon footprint of e-books, and they don't stack up well against the old-fashioned kind. Raz Gudelnik is the co-founder and CEO of Ecolibris. It's a company working to green up the book industry in the digital age. He joins us by Skype, and Raz Gudelnik, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I was amazed to read in an article you wrote that the average paperback is a pretty hefty tome. It has a greenhouse gas footprint of, what, four kilos? That's 10 pounds. How is that possible that it should be 10 pounds worth of carbon from one little book? Well, it's it's true that it looks like a, a little book, but the whole manufacturing process is a process that includes cutting off trees and then using a lot of energy in the manufacturing process in paper mills and eventually transporting the book to warehouses and then to uh, bookstores. It's a long process, but most of the carbon footprint comes from the the beginning of the process, uh, more than uh, 80% of the whole carbon footprint of the book. Well, let's compare that, say, to an Apple iPad, which only weighs in at about a, a pound and a half. How big is the Apple iPad's carbon footprint? Well, according to Apple, the iPad has a carbon footprint that is equal to the footprint of about 32 paper books. One Apple iPad equals the carbon footprint of 32 paperbacks? That's true. How about other e-readers like um, the Kindle? So when it comes to the Kindle, which is the main e-reader in, in the market, uh, the problem is that we don't have any uh, data because uh, Amazon doesn't reveal anything. Uh, not only that Amazon uh, doesn't volunteer to, to do so, they were asked many times to uh, to reveal the carbon footprint or other information related to the uh, footprint of the uh, Kindle. And so far, we uh, just uh, don't have anything from them. If we want to make the Kindle more eco-friendly, first we have to know, you know, what's the, the starting point. So you, you want the book industry to turn over a new leaf. <laughs> Definitely. It's, it's true. When you look at e-readers, most readers uh, assume instinctively that they're greener and better from environmental point of view because, you know, you save paper. But again, the, the thing is that we see a new product with uh, some new issues. So usually when I'm asked if uh, e-reading is greener than uh, traditional reading of paper books, my reply is that it depends. It depends on the uh, profile of the reader. If you're an avid reader and you read many books, probably e-reader is a greener option 
for you. But if you read only a couple of books a year, it might be that paper books, that the traditional books are still a better option when it comes to the environmental impact of, of your reading. So it definitely depends. And of course, it also depends on how much time are you going to, to keep the, the e-reader that you're having or that you're planning to buy? Is it only for one year until the next version will be out or is it for five years? So there's definitely not one answer for everyone, but it's individual answer for each and every uh, reader. One of the things that your company, Ecolibris, is trying to do is have people contribute a buck to buy a tree each time they read a book. Oh, yes. Uh, one of the things we work on is to uh, make reading more sustainable. And part of our operations is the tree planting program that we have where we uh, encourage both readers and publishers to uh, plant trees for the books that uh, they either read or publish. And we have these trees planted in, in Central America and in Africa, places that uh, suffer from deforestation, where these trees uh, benefit both uh, the, the environment and the local community. How many trees have you bought so far? Well, so far we had uh, planted with our planting partners about 180,000 trees, and uh, we look forward to planting uh, many more. Raz Gadelnik is CEO of Ecolibris. Read all about it on our webpage, loe.org. Just ahead, big changes for big sky country as gas wells put pressure on the environment. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Sublet County, Wyoming is the size of Connecticut, but the population, just 6,000 residents. Pinedale is the county seat and home to the Museum of the Mountain Man, which chronicles those who explored this vast rural region in the 19th century. In the 21st century, it's the search for natural gas that draws attention to this part of Big Sky Country. The Jonah Field and the Pinedale Anticline are two of the largest gas fields in the nation. The deer and the antelope literally play atop the fields, but the drilling is changing the landscape where they live, perhaps permanently. Jason Alpert reports. The mountain and sage lands in this part of western Wyoming are sometimes called the North American Serengeti. There's a lot of country out there and a lot of pockets for the antelope, the mule deer, sage grouse. That's Freddie Botour, a ranch owner outside of Pondale. When winter snows pummel the big hills, herds of pronghorn antelope and deer come down to a broad table or mesa here. Winds brush aside the snow, exposing just enough grass and sage to sustain this big game. It doesn't have trees, it doesn't have lakes, it doesn't look anything spectacular like a national park, but this is that kind of in-between land between the mountains and the desert. That's really important. Really important for the animals here, because they burn crucial fat reserves once the Arctic air moves in. Rollin Sparrow is a wildlife biologist with over four decades of experience. We meet in his cabin to escape the zero-degree cold. 
winter concentration areas for mule deer in the northern Rockies are the key to their future survival. The fate of the herd for that year is going to be determined by the condition of those animals coming off that winter range and heading back up to breed again. But Sparrow says he fears for this rhythm of big game that local hunters have tracked for generations. A decade ago, energy companies arrived. They call the Mesa the Anacline. It's rich with natural gas. And in Sublet County, about three years ago, there was $4 billion of revenue from all the oil and gas, and a lot of it was coming off the anticline. And it was pretty clear that that was the big ticket to everybody. Since then, this place has changed to its core. On Pinedale's main drag, the Corral Bar and Grill and Stockman's Restaurant tell of the town's ranching roots. Weather, rain, and cattle futures used to be what mattered here. Now, it's global gas prices. There's a rush hour here now as heavy-duty 4x4s haul roughnecks to the field. Yeah, I'm Kevin Williams. I'm the district manager for QEP in Pinedale. Williams hops into the company rig and heads to the gas patch. Beyond his windshield, mountains loom over vast sagebrush. Well, the anticline is basically an underground mountain. It was created when the uplift of the Wind Rivers and the Wyoming Range created a buckle in the crust that allowed for the gas to be trapped and not escape to surface and into the atmosphere. Williams says the geology reveals sandbars deposited by ancient rivers. A lot of people liken it to a bowl of potato chips. You stick a straw in it, you only hit so many potato chips, thus the need to drill more wells to be able to recover all the resource. What he's alluding to becomes clear in a moment. We're turning on Paradise Road. The sage lands suddenly recede. Drilling rigs tower into a frigid, bright blue sky. Four Walmart-sized parking lots swarm with activity. So you can see, you know, about a mile and a half up that rig, kind of same thing over there. On squares of flattened earth known as well pads, work crews drill while others prepare to frack. The controversial practice used to fracture bedrock to enhance gas extraction. Red Halliburton trucks. You can see how they have piping coming off the back. So there's a pump. They're all manifolded together, getting ready to pump a frack job. From here, it's hard to fathom the anticline is anything but an energy patch. Yet Callie McKee from Ultra Petroleum has a trained eye. You see the antelope out there? Energy operators have made concessions to wildlife here. In fact, many people point to this area as a model for progressive practices. One is a liquid gathering system. Wells here produce huge quantities of a gas byproduct that liquefies at the Earth's surface. This system captures the fluid in a lengthy series of enclosed pipes. Before, all this liquid had to be trucked to tanks, hundreds of them. Between the three operators, we'll eliminate over 165,000 truck trips a year. So, I mean, that's a lot of trucks. And so you can imagine, this is happening 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Thanks to gas, the coffers of Sublet County are fat. School classrooms are stocked with supplies. There's a gleaming aquatic center. Pondale also boasts a new green library where solar panels capture sunlight, and where I met Lori Lotta. 
to me as a longtime Sublet County person who has watched communities die, when you see those young people coming in that are educated and have new ideas and they have good jobs and they can contribute to this community, I mean, there are a lot of things about the oil and gas industry that you can say, oh, that's bad, but there are a lot of things that are good about it, too. For folks in Pondale, like Lada, the radical landscape conversion is bittersweet. You know, my husband and my sons are hunters. They used to go south of Pinedale onto what is now the Anticline and hunt antelope. And it was a big family male bonding experience. And they can't do that anymore because, of course, there's pipelines and roads and everything. It's not the way that it was before. My younger son, it particularly bothers him that he can't do what he loved to do as a child. Um, Life is a trade-off. Once the wells are drilled and the rigs move on, the long-term trade-offs are stark. Well pads are bare. Federal and industry officials say sage-stripped hills will be replanted. Habitat will be returned. But sagebrush ecosystems take decades to revitalize. Some here say, off the record, this area is a sacrifice zone for natural gas and may never come back. In October, a report showed the population of mule deer down by more than half in the past decade. But some places in the region, like that ranch belonging to Freddy Botour, who we heard from earlier, are being set aside. Boutour once feared his cottonwood ranches would be drilled. He does not own the mineral rights here. My first year on the ranch, I was negotiating uh, 3D seismics, 2D seismics, pipelines. I spent more time with lawyers than I did with anybody else. That was my first awareness that when uh, you don't own mineral rights, you really are subservient to oil and gas companies. But when the test drilling was done, it turned out there was no major gas on the ranch. And my argument has always been, well, there's very little gas here, and uh, so there's low energy potential and high wildlife potential. So Botour protected the ranch with a conservation easement, funded by energy companies. From a high place on the property, he looks down on crescent-shaped Muddy Creek and miles of sage uplands. So all of this that you're looking out here, all these fingers and benches and draws, we're looking at forever. <laughs> In the New West, forever is not limitless. Botour squints and looks to the horizon. To the east, southeast here, you can see a, a typical mesa. Um, that's actually the ancline. And if you were to uh, come out here at night, you can definitely see the lights. I mean, this used to be one of the darkest places most people have ever been. And now it looks like Denver's on the horizon. Up on the Anaclon, a herd of 40 pronghorns settle in deep, drifted snow. The reality is, this stretch of western Wyoming offers highly concentrated gas under critical winter habitat. The antelope huddle close together. Not 50 yards away, gas wells gurgle and hiss. With a close listen, you can hear the breath of dinosaurs. For Living on Earth in Pondale, Wyoming, this is Jason Albert. Coming up, a visit to one of the world's most extreme deserts. But first, this note on emerging science from Sean Falk. A coral reef is a noisy place. 
filled with sounds of clicking fish and snapping shrimp. That's important for reef-dwelling fish who head towards the noise to find their way back home. Now, researchers at Bristol University in the UK think reef noise is also important for crustaceans like shrimp, crabs, and lobsters, creatures previously thought to be deaf. Marine biologists collected almost 700,000 crustaceans from the Great Barrier Reef and put them into a large pool. They set up an underwater sound system that streamed a recording of a coral reef, and what they saw surprised them. Crustaceans like crabs and lobsters that live in reefs scuttled towards the noise, while others, those that eat plankton and have predators in reefs, scurried away. The scientists say their study highlights how important ocean acoustics are to sea creatures, and how noise pollution from our ships could disrupt marine ecosystems. A recent study showed that in the last 50 years, man-made noise in the ocean has increased a hundredfold. If we continue at that rate, our industrial noises may drown out the chirps and snaps that make up the chorus of the coral reef. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Sean Falk. The McMurdo Dry Valleys are more like Mars than any place on Earth, and you have to go to the ends of the Earth to reach them. That's what Glenn Zorbet did for IEEE Spectrum. Here's his report from the series Antarctica: Life on the Ice. The dry valleys are among the most arid places on Earth. There's very little snow and not a lot of ice, except for some scattered glaciers. And yet, inside the Taylor Valley, where I was standing. And when I came down into Taylor for the first time and heard that water trickling, it, it almost brought a tear to my eye. Joseph Levy is a postdoctoral fellow with Portland State University and the McMurdo Long-Term Ecological Research Group, also known as the LTER. You know, two months of not hearing any liquid water except for what we have in the pot, and this is just—I love it. <laughs> Levy knew exactly where that noise of trickling water was coming from. That's the the sound of some old ice. That's、uh, water deposited 4,000 years ago. Up in the accumulation zone of one of the glaciers, apparently. And、uh, right now, when the sun shines during the peak summer, it melts, flows down over the frozen ground surface, and out into the、uh, lake. So that's why I'm really interested in the, the ground. Is it's this big unexplored source for water, for chemistry, for all the things that the LTR is interested in. These little trickles of water sluicing their way through the dry valleys can mean the difference between dormancy and animation to some rather well-adapted creatures. The、uh, dominant predator here in the dry valleys is the fearsome nematode. It's a microscopic worm that eats、uh, both algae and also other microbes. Are there nematodes unique to this area, or are there specific adaptations that you've seen with them? The nematodes,、uh, most of them are endemic, so they're they're from here and unique to here. They adapt to the sub-freezing temperatures in the winter by drying themselves out, and then、uh, as soon as the first trickle of water comes from either melting snow in the spring, or a trickle of water off a glacier, or in my interest, the melting of permafrost and the wicking up of water, they snap into activity and start、uh, eating, respirating, multiplying, and living their lives in the summer. Nematodes belong to a simple food web to which Levy and his team are making small experimental tweaks. They add some extra water here, some extra food there, and observe how food webs respond to a changing environment. And given that we're part of a larger food web, even just understanding how the nematodes adapt is telling us a little bit about how how we adapt as a species. Very few critters, other than nematodes, can live in the dry valleys. Take seals, for example. Ray Spain is a Raytheon employee who assists the scientists. We have a lot of mummified seals up and down the valley. 
we're not really sure why they come up here and for some reason they tend to go further and further up valley which you're gaining altitude and you're going over big lumpy rocks it can't be easy travel because they travel much better in water and then they die of course because they're not going back to sea the seals will wander as far as 10 or 12 miles away from the sea hauling their blubbery bodies over rugged mountains and hills long way for a seal with little tiny flippers for feet and then they don't there's no bacteria here to break them down so they just desiccate they just dry out and then become a bag of bones with beef jerky around them goes to show just how hostile the dry valleys can be still Joseph Levy finds the Antarctic, and the dry valleys in particular, an endlessly rewarding habitat to explore. On those, those few occasions when the wind dies and you're 10 or 15 miles from camp, you're the only soul in the valley, and it's absolutely breathtaking. The opportunity, though, to really study this place, to understand it, to get an appreciation not just of its surface beauty, but of how it's functioning uh, and how it's changing with time is really the great opportunity. It is a life-changing experience, uh, and it's a very addictive place to do work. There's a lot of data here and a lot of information, and it's critical because, as you can hear, it's melting out every day. For Living on Earth, I'm Glenn Zorpet in the Taylor Valley in Antarctica. Glenn's story comes to us from the IEEE Spectrum documentary, Antarctica, Life on the Ice. From the dry valleys of Antarctica to its wet seashore, we leave you this week at the bottom of the world with Weddell seals. <coughs> Weddell seals live further south than any other mammal and are found in the chilly waters all around Antarctica. They can grow to be about 9 feet long and weigh as much as 1,300 pounds. The seals live on fixed ice that's attached to the coast, but in the winter, they stay in the water to dodge blizzards. Douglas Quinn recorded the calls of these mother seals and their pups for the Wild Sanctuary CD, Antarctica. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Mitrataj, and Jeff Young, with help from Sarah Calkins and Sammy Susan. Our interns are Sean Falk and Wynn Tucker. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find this anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the LOE Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies, Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, 
dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org. And Pax World Mutual Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.